Welcome to the Leaders Table podcast, where policy leaders share the inside stories of their impact on the world, and we capture the secrets behind their success to help you increase yours. Education, diversity, and equity, core American issues. What are the things that I should be pushing for to inspire a movement? Let's, let's dig into that. Welcome, everyone. Here on the Leaders Table podcast, it is our job to dissect leaders in policy and education to dig into the practices, tools, tips, and actionable strategies of their success to empower you. And today we're excited to have Ryan Smith, Executive Director of the Education Trust West, riffing about California, about kids of color and equity, and what it's like to be an Executive Director. Yeah, and what's so compelling about this interview is Ryan talking about moving an agenda in California. No easy place to move anything in. Ryan is so prescient about the use of data in advocacy, um, and particularly in how to move ideas that are important to to the success of students of color. Yeah, and I was personally inspired by Ryan talking about his upbringing, you know, his mom, um, and sort of how that shaped him as a leader of a team of what he referred to as angelic troublemakers at the Ed Trust West. And, you know, the, the career gems here are in Ryan talking about his personal path, Um, in ideas for becoming a senior leader, and whether or not every aspiring advocate actually needs to aspire to be an executive director. Good question. So now we're really excited for you to listen to Ryan Smith at the Leader's Table. So Ryan, thank you so much for uh, for joining the podcast today. Let me just by way of introduction, so that everyone knows, you are the executive director of the Education Trust West, um, which is a research and advocacy organization focused on educational justice and the high academic achievement for all California students, and particularly those uh, students of color. Uh, living in poverty. Um, under your leadership, the organization has expanded its work with a specific focus on producing actionable, accessible research and advocacy tools that reach state policymakers and on-the-ground community advocates, advocates and education leaders alike. I know that before the Education Trust West, you worked for Mayor Ria Dragosa, led a team that improved parent involvement over 40% in LA and built systems within schools to help support authentic family, school, and community partners. Partnerships. Um, in that work, uh, I understand you founded something called the Parent College, which I look forward to learning about, uh, which so far has educated over 5,000 parents across LA on the parent three R's that is, their rights, roles, and responsibilities. Ryan, welcome. Uh, thank you. Really happy to be here. Yeah, we're excited to, to talk with you a little bit, excited to, to learn about you, about your career, and to, to pull out some of those, um, some of those special things that make you a leader uh, achieving impact in your, uh, in your space. So let's, let's just kind of get into it. Um, you, Ryan, are one of the most respected voices for equity in education and specifically, uniquely using data to drive policy. You can you talk us a little bit about what your current priorities are for California uh, and for your work? Yeah, so as you mentioned, at Trust West, um, for the last 15 years has been an organization really centered on educational equity. And we uh, look at it through a lens of what can we do uh, with the policy lever? How can we approach uh, advocating for educational justice? Um, looking at research, um, particularly um, at the data around how our low-income students and students of color are doing, um, but also really how do we build a movement um, from communities who are really demanding the type of change needed uh, to improve uh, student achievement? Um, you know, I often say that 
while the policy work is important, I believe it's absolutely a critical lever. Um, movements aren't led by policy. They're led by people, and people should inform those policies. So a lot of our work around data um, is really about what we like to sometimes call in my office uh, data to the people, the democratization of data. How do we take what usually a handful of uh, people have access to, which is rich, meaningful, powerful data that can help inform instruction and help inform the way that um, we support students. And how do we get that into the hands of the masses? How do we make sure that those people in Sacramento have as much access to data um, and in ways that people should have in, 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 in communities like Watts or communities like Boyle Heights, communities in Fresno or the Central Valley um, or in San Diego? Um, we really think data is owned by the public, and even though it's publicly available, it's not always publicly accessible or transparent. So uh, recently we uh, did a report entitled Black Minds Matter, which was a report focused on a call to action to improve uh, the, the state of black student success based on the data that really showed that while we've made some improvement supporting students, particularly black students over the last uh, 15 years, We've basically squandered um, black student talent um, across the board. And uh, so, you know, we've shown the, the light on the data there and then showed where we see communities and schools and uh, higher education institutions turning the curve to support um, African-American students. So we're doing more projects like that. And because of that, that uh, the report Black Lives Matter, we saw a thousand African-American students come to a state board meeting, high school students, community college students, who said that, yes, we are young, gifted, black, we are excited about our opportunities, but the state must be held accountable to our success as well. And we believe um, that's important when we talk about how to leverage the will of people. And, you know, the, the nation's attention is focused on or more focused on the issues facing black lives than ever. Um, has the Black Lives Matter movement come to include kind of broader uh, broader policy issues facing equity, particularly the, the education policy movement? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, the great thing about um, the work we see with the movement uh, for black lives is that it's really been centered on, well, how do we improve the lives of, of African-Americans? And obviously the idea is that, well, we need to look at uh, the lives of all folks. When we look at the deaths of unarmed um, black young men and women, um, particularly at the hands of police, there's something we should be doing about it. And the great thing is we've seen recently um, leaders of um, the Black Lives Matter movement calling for reforms in all types of ways, including uh, education. I believe there was a call to action about how we fund education in our communities. And I really think the future of, of movement building and coalition building lies in the intersection. Oftentimes we look at, well, these are education advocates. These are criminal justice advocates. These are folks who are working on housing. But the more we begin to see uh, the work that is uh, uh, that is common amongst different sectors, the more likely we're able to band together to demand the type of things that will close achievement and opportunity gaps, that will close wage gaps, that will provide housing stability in communities. Uh, we we have limited resources here, so we should be working together. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, you know. We it does seem like so much of the advocacy community can become siloed, that there are people that are working on education and education is their issue, or there are people that are working on housing or and that's their issue or criminal justice reform. And that's their issue. But in reality, it's one kid every day that has to live where he's living, get to school safely get into school and get what he or she is going to need to be successful in life and then get home safely. And it's, it's one kit that, that all those institutions affect. Um, do you have a, do you have a sense that there is a, a movement toward a more comprehensive agenda around equity? Is there a consciousness about more of a consciousness about how those issues collide? 
Yeah, I, I think we're starting to see that. I know that there was um, a recently Education Leaders of Color group launched that's looking at a third way in which we approach um, education reform, which I think is needed. Um, I think we're starting to see more people band together under um, the umbrella of equity. But you're starting to see across many systems, whether it's criminal justice, whether it's education, whether it's housing or health, um, this idea that we tend to dance around the issue of how race and class um, play themselves within large systems, that um, we aren't often talking about uh, how those who usually start um, the furthest behind continue to have the largest obstacles that they have to figure out uh, how to traverse. Like, those are things that um, we're oftentimes are reticent to talk about, but particularly in education. Um, you know, there's a lot of times where people are using the word equity when they're really trying to talk to issues of racism and classism. And while equity is important, um, we have to deal with racism. We have to deal with classism. Um, we have to deal um, with issues of uh, homophobia. We have to deal with issues of gender inequities. Um, if we're ever going to get to the root of how we create systems that best support the students who actually attend our schools today. So I'm excited about the broader discussion, and I'm excited that people are reaching across the aisles to get work done. Absolutely. So, Ryan, one of the things that I, I'm really personally inspired about your leadership story is that you are both a policy person and someone who I consider truly an organizer at heart. And typically, those two things, don't they don't live in the same being, usually, usually. Um, there's a great quote from you in your bio. You say, I grew up with a single mom who dedicated everything to ensure that I had access to a quality education. Because of her passion, at the age of 15, I started community organizing in South L.A. for educational improvement efforts. I continue to commit to getting results for impoverished communities and communities of color by leveraging the intersection between research, advocacy, policy, and community engagement. It just, it seems like you have just this unique um, experience and skill set at talking the language of, of policy, the language of advocacy in Sacramento, but also being able to, to uniquely connect that movement to real people on the ground and help them to understand it. Can you talk about, a little bit about that? Yeah, and, you know, and you probably said better my bio than it probably actually is, which is really um, awesome. I, I will say this. I, um, I've i had the opportunity to do some really interesting and very different things. And, you know, I've, I've tried to take risks that I thought were important um, in thinking about how we approach supporting communities differently, students differently, and parents differently. And it's provided me... Um, interesting perspectives in, 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 a, in like a myriad of places. But yeah, you know, I, I grew up in Culver City, California. Um, the reason, I, which is kind of a suburban-y part of Los Angeles. The reason I grew up in Culver City is because of the sacrifice of my mom. She was a single mom. Um, she was raised in East Palo Alto, which was once known as the murder capital of the world per capita. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, she was the first person in her family to go to college and understood the importance of college. Um, but, you know, after she attended college, uh, she um, ended up pregnant with me. And she said, you know, I realized what education has done for me and the opportunities that I have. Um, but, you know, raising a young son, particularly a young black male, I, I know that education has to become even more important for him because, um, truthfully, she believed that there were more obstacles that I would have to figure out how to get around. So she took everything she had um, and moved to a community um, that she heard uh, did well as far as educating young students of color, and that happened to be uh, Culver City. Uh, and I believe at that time, Culver City was more like one of the third racial diverse cities in America. And I, it's funny, I tell my mom... Um, that she's indeed a researcher, a qualitative researcher, because <laughs> 10 years, 15 years later, that Trust West does a report um, around 
um, black student success, and they point to Culver City as one of the school districts that do the best in educating black students. And I just tell her, yeah, you're a researcher and you didn't know it. Um, but uh, so, yeah, you know, my, my story some, somehow starts at Culver City, went to Culver City uh, uh, Unified School District, uh, graduated actually. Uh, went on to UCLA after that. Uh, this was post Proposition 209, which ended affirmative action in the public sector. So we saw a dramatic decline of black students, um, particularly black male students. So I entered a freshman class of 4,000 students at UCLA, and I was one of 27 black men um, who got into UCLA just on academics. Uh, I like to say we could have wore shirts that said black male students, endangered species, because that's exactly what it felt like. And oftentimes, uh, when you start your freshman orientation, someone says, look to the left and look to the right, and one of you won't be here. Well, we were all sitting with each other, and we realized if we're not going, if we look to the left, look to the right, we're talking um, literally, you know, 14, 15 of us may be making it across the finish line. So we, we, we knew that, number one, we would have to do more in thinking differently about how to diversify campuses. But that taught me a lesson that this is a higher ed issue, but this is also a K-12 issue. We have to strengthen the pipeline in order to ensure that um, African-American students are not only just accepted into universities like UCLA and others, um, but that they're prepared to um, persist and graduate and go on to really rewarding careers. So that began, I think, in my head, this thinking about, well, what do you do um, in, in education, um, which I thought was really important. So I had spent part of my youth doing youth organizing work in South Los Angeles. I continued that work while I was in college because I thought that was really important in making sure that there were more students we get into a UCLA. Um, and then after I graduated, um, I spent some more time doing organizing work, which I was really passionate about. Um, I had the uh, opportunity. I was a core fellow for a little bit, which I really enjoyed, a core fellow in public affairs. Um, but that led me to um, spending some time in Mexico. So I actually did some volunteering as a uh, volunteer teacher in the orphanages of uh, Cuernavaca in, in, in Mexico City. Uh, oftentimes, uh, my students would call me uh, Chocolatote Grandote, which in English is giant chocolate. <laughs> and um, <laughs> it was it was really it was really amazing. I, I, I you know I was able to not only teach but to also live um, with some of uh, the students, and that was a great experience. I think that cemented in me the power of education. So. Um, I came back and did some work with Greenbelt Public Schools, uh, then received a call from the Mayor's Partnership for LA Schools to, uh, they said, hey, you've been doing organizing work outside of communities. What is it like to really build um, something within school districts that support powerful, meaningful uh, family engagement and community engagement? And as you mentioned before, that led to the launch of the parent college. Mm. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, I, as, as much as I consider myself an advocate at heart, I realized um, when, you know, I spoke to the mayor and spoke to my colleagues, you know, the call to action was, well, you know, we talk about welcoming environments, but how do you really build them for parents? And one of the things I realized, because most of the partnership schools, these were traditional public schools, um, probably in the most chronically underperforming schools um, within LAUSD, uh, and we had the opportunity to really transform them. And it actually became one of the largest transformation projects in the, uh, in the state and in the country. And we had about 15 schools, and we said, well, what can we do to demonstrate that um, schools that have high concentrations of black, brown, and poor children can achieve, can succeed. You will see high graduation rates, et cetera. So uh, my task was let's make these um, environments more welcoming. We put a parent center in every, uh, in every school, and 
if the parent centers had terrible furniture and were, were chipping um, away, we knew that that wasn't welcoming. So we refurbished everyone and gave them technology necessary for them to feel welcome. Um, we made sure that each uh, school had an assistant principal in charge of family engagement. So we knew where the buck stopped and we created um, family action teams in each of those schools that would create a family engagement strategic plan. We call those teams fat teams, but like the good fat, like avocado for your body, not the bad right. fat. That's what we tell parents. Right. Um, but the good fat for the body. Like what, what's the way that you work? And it wasn't just parents. It was teachers, and uh, it was teachers, parents, and ministers working together to create a robust family engagement program. But the jewel of the program was the parent college. So we realized that oftentimes we think parents know how to partner with schools. And we often chastise them because we say, well, they don't come to the back-to-school nights. They're, they're coming to our student conferences. What's, what's really happening? And what we started to realize is that parents still needed more support in, how, in understanding how to navigate the system. Parents wanted to be partners but didn't, also, you know, didn't always know how. So we built a program where once a month we bust in parents from across Los Angeles to uh, one of our campuses, and LAUSD teachers would teach parents the fundamentals of how they can support their children academically. We moved way beyond the bake sale to really tell them, this is how you understand grades and transcripts. This is what it means to get your students' college and career ready. When you go into a school and you go into a classroom, these, this is what a good classroom should look like. You should see student work. You should see um, 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 levels of engagement. And they even instructional rounds to have a sense of um, um, what quality instruction looked like. Not only that, we took thousands of parents to universities across Los Angeles. Some parents had never stepped foot at a university at all. And this is a community where uh, students in Watts have never gone to the beach, let alone mm-hmm. taking parents who may live only seven minutes, 10 minutes away from university, but never felt welcomed enough to actually step foot on it. Absolutely. And at you know, the I, university, we showed them. Uh-huh. Absolutely. I, I was just going to say, I, you know, I, I typically say that I survived the New York City public schools, and I know firsthand that it's not that that poor parents or immigrant families or parents that don't speak English well don't want to be a part of the process. It's that they typically have not been invited in and many times have been made to feel uh, either that they don't have a role or a right or responsibility or that they're just flat out not welcome or their input is not welcome. So th- this, is, uh, this is just incredibly inspiring to hear. Yeah, and the only thing I'll say is I remember starting that program where we sent out a thousand letters and only 10 parents came. And I can say four years later, or five years, even six years later now, we've seen over 5,000 parents actually attend their classes. Um, a, a large number of those students, are parents actually graduating the program and coming back next year. So it just, uh, it just pushes against this narrative that black, brown, and poor parents don't care, that they have two jobs, so they can't participate. I don't believe in that at all. I believe things that we've made up or... The, this idea that higher income parents care more and have more time. I've never even seen data that supports that either. Mm. It shows that once we build the right systems, parents will come. And that was really exciting um, for me uh, during that part of my career. Absolutely. I want to pull back to, you were talking earlier about um, your mom's sacrifice and your sacrifice. And it made me think as I was listening to you about a, a Tanahisi quote, uh, Coates quote. He says, we stand on the shoulders of those who fought despite not seeing victories in their lifetimes or their children's lifetimes or even their grandchildren's lifetimes. And, and so fatalism is not an option. And it is by no question, no one can question that that progress has been made over uh, just our our little lifetimes here but there's uh, clearly from everything going on around us every every bit of the news every bit of the data that i want to dig in with you a little bit on on the achievement gap that there's so much left to do that that it can feel as if it's very hard to to actually accomplish change to make an impact wherever you are how do you how do you keep yourself 
in in that in that thinking about uh, away from the nihilism that says, ah, you know, these these problems are just too hard. They're too intractable. This is a three hundred year problem, and I have you know a hundred and ten years on this earth. I wish you one hundred and ten years, by the way. Um, how do you keep how do you keep yourself from that from that nihilism? Yeah, I mean, so there's a, there's a couple of ways, right? I, you know, I grew up um, in a family that said, truthfully, I mean, I will never truly be successful if my brothers and sisters and community fail. And, it's, and that's something that I still take to heart to this day, that if, even if I made the most amount of money and lived on, um, on top of a hill, if my community on the bottom of that hill is not succeeding, then what have I really done? What have you really gained? Because I can't take... Um, power or money or fame with me, but I can take with me the ability to believe that I actually made a difference in someone's life that will make a difference in another generation's life as well. So that's that's something that is that that still rings true to me. Mm-hmm. I said the other thing is you, you can't look at the world around you and 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 not say we should be doing something more. I mean, you know, looking at the images of of um, what's happening when it comes to um, young women and men who've unfortunately lost their lives um, at the hands of police or in other activities, that, that doesn't make you stop and say, I should be doing something. Um, Julian Bond, the famous civil rights uh, icon, died about a year ago. And one of his famous quotes, uh, you know, stated that violence is black children going to school for 12 years and receiving six years worth of education. And I remember looking at that quote and going, you're right here. We, we have systems where students are doing everything right. Everything right. They're attending school. They're, they 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 believe they're learning what they need to learn. They're excited. They're motivated, and they have every. And they're brilliant, and and should have every opportunity in front of them. And yet, when they apply for college, having done everything right, they can't pull together an essay that's actually uh, understood by the admissions officers, because we've yeah. done something wrong as adults. We felt that child. Uh, and, and you can't sit and, and be comfortable with that, particularly because children are probably our most precious resource, and it's not their fault. And unfortunately, sometimes sometimes we point at each other, uh, point at everything else except stand up and say, I take responsibility for what we've done wrong. And I'll say this. I take responsibility for what we've done wrong as adults and of really dedicating at least what I have on this earth to change that. And the last thing I'll say, because there's a lot of leaders doing a lot of work, the most challenging thing I think for any leader who is doing significant transformation work, particularly as it relates to getting results for any population, is the ability to hold steady. The ability through um, the trials, the tribulations, through the congratulations, to be able to max all that stuff out, to block all of it out, I should say, and mm-hmm. say, you know what, I'm going to hold steady because at the end of the day, it's about the results I get for the population. So whether you're applauding me or you're saying I'm a phony, whether you're saying I don't know what you're doing, whether you're saying, you know, I question your vision, being steadfast and believing if you're fighting for results for our students, it's the right vision. And even if you're criticizing me, I'm going to stand firm because next month you may be applauding me. And the month after that, you may be criticizing me again. But if mm-hmm. students are graduating, then I know I'm in the good. I'm in the clear. I'm doing what's right. Yeah, leadership doesn't come with uh, with with uh, acclaim all the time or or agreement from everyone. Unfortunately, right? Most of the so, time, not. <laughs> so tell so. Let's talk a little bit about about what that looks like for you. You are an executive director. Uh, the Education Trust West is a is a research and policy and advocacy pow- powerhouse. Um, I know it personally in that it, uh, 20 years ago, in 19, almost 20 years ago, in 1998, I interned with the Education Trust in D.C. for about a year and worked on the second version of uh, the EdWatch data book. 
uh, data book, <laughs> by go. the way. That yeah. was back in the day, back before data could live online. And, um, and it, it reminds me of what you were talking about earlier on about the de- democratization of data. I remember we had to go to these backwoods servers, download these <laughs> data sets, and figure out how to create some pivot tables and create a, a visualization stuff that, um, it would just, just, it just sounds crazy by today's yeah. notion. Today, though, as, a, as an advocacy leader, you, you have tools, you have the data available to you, you can be in contact with anyone around the world, you can be in contact with, um, you know, with, with policymakers, you can be in contact with, co- with communities. Things are easier in some ways, right? Yep. Yep, 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 yep. I will say that. I think we've been better... We have created more systems where it's easier to communicate, but I won't say that that has led to um, greater understanding um, of data, unfortunately. And, that, and, that, and that's the challenge, right? Because, unfortunately, um, the way that we use data isn't around building people's capacity and awareness to connect the data they see to help inform the work they're doing, whether it's an advocate who becomes more sophisticated because they really understand achieve an opportunity gap to their community. Or sometimes when we give teachers a 400-page data binder at the beginning of the year, and then we say, go with God, you now understand everything you need to know about <laughs> what to do. That's, that is not the right way to approach data. Um, we need to take a step back um, and cut through the noise of some of the data, big data that we see now, to help people understand this is how you look at data this is how you understand it, um, and this is how you may move forward with it. So I'll give you an example. At Etrus West, um, we've started doing um, data equity walks, where which is actually a gallery walk of um, some of the longitudinal data that we see around disparities, but also what we like to call bright spot data and turning the curve data on what's happening um, in local communities. And usually these data walks are geared towards the community that we're in, We've done these with parents, we've done them with students, we've done them with teachers, and we give people the opportunity to breathe, to take a day, to look at the data they see around the room, and we ask them some critical questions. What's your general reaction to the data that you see? What's missing from the data story you're seeing? What's the context? to the data that you can share and how can you use this data to inform your work and ultimately get results for the students that we serve. Mm -hmm. And you should see the robust conversation people start to have because no one's created a space for them to actually engage in the data in a way that helps them start to put the pieces together. Um, I don't care if you're a policymaker or you're a student from Roosevelt High School in Boyle Heights you start to make those connections in really powerful ways. And then we have them put their ideas on sticky notes on the data so they're engaging with it. Then you go around and see what other people are thinking. And that's, that's the next endeavor for our work. Is if we're talking about democratizing data, there's a need to warehouse it um, on a website. Then we should bring it to the communities, new communities where they're at. Create reports that help people act and engage to your point earlier, what's community, what's community participatory action research look like? How can they be partners in that research and that work? Um, but people are never going to use the data to move results until they understand how to. So we you know, are that, about empowering communities. Mm-hmm. That, that really speaks to me in that I think, you know, all of us that, that pay attention to data – uh, you see the same story over and over again. It's something mm-hmm. something defective. Poor people are not making it. Black and brown people um, are falling behind. The achievement gap between blacks, Latinos, and, and their white counterparts looks like X. And in some ways, when that data sits outside of you and you're not able to live, breathe, walk in it, and think about it, it can be demoralizing, right? If I'm, if I'm a 15-year-old in high school and I hear these stats about the achievement gap, Without some some sense of agency, without somebody saying, "Well, this is why we're sharing this with you," or "This is how you can uh, you can use this data," it can just seem like a, a final judgment. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Or you're underscoring stereotypes. Um, and that's why the, that's why data can be so powerful because not only does it show you where we're at, but it shows you also where things are going well and what progress we've made too. And I think that data is as important, if not more important sometimes for communities. Unfortunately, we've heard that, hey, there's an achievement gap issue, but there's an opportunity gap issue. But we haven't heard about Laurel Street Elementary School in Compton, California, where students are twice as likely to be proficient um, and meeting standards in English than the state average. And these are um, black, brown, and low-income children. We don't talk about Endercombe High School in Sacramento, where almost every single African-American student graduated in their cohort within four years. Mm. Endercombe shows that it can be done because these students are not rich students. These students are low-income students. These students come from communities that have some of the same quote-unquote deficits that others do, but they're graduating. Um, We don't talk about schools in the Central Valley that have reduced um, suspensions and expulsions to the point where um, they're virtually non-existent, and that, that it can be done. And I think that data is really powerful. So as much as data does give us a sense of where our students are, data can start to show the bright spots. And I'm always excited when people begin to engage in the bright spot data. Absolutely. Katie Haycock always has uh, talked about, you know, if we only had the will. Um, and I've always, you know, I've followed the, the Education Trust data for the last, uh, you know, for almost 20 years since I since I left the place. And um, the work has inspired the way that I think about the power of data, the the power of of change, standards based reform. I mean, so many of the the the, the kind of evolving elements of the the education reform movement. I wonder if I could get you to talk. I want to read you um, a quote from you from the Sacramento Bee talking about English language learners in California. And I was wondering if we could spend a couple of minutes talking about um, what the policy agenda could be to drive um, to drive high quality learning and achievement for for English language learners. So you write just um, a couple of years ago, last year, I believe. Um, you might think California could serve as a model for supporting this uh, the the EELL population. Nearly 45% of Californians speak a language other than English at home, and in our schools, nearly one in four students is learning English. But sadly, the state doesn't get a passing grade yet. Of the 60. Uh, public school agencies nationally under scrutiny by the Office of Civil Rights, 13 are in California. Test scores in our state will show a persistent achievement gap between native speakers and English learners. There is some indication students who transition out of English learner status often still struggle. And moreover, California's misguided passage of Prop 227 in 1998 has severely limited the use of bilingual education programs, which can lead to positive language and academic outcomes for students. So, Ryan, why why can't a state like California get it right? Well, you know, and I wouldn't say a state like California couldn't get it right. I, you know, I think um, we have um, this. If there was ever a time to really think about equity and to think about how we move the needle, particularly for English learners, now is the time. Particularly because the state has just moved um, for the low control funding formula, which actually provides higher concentration uh, provides more money to districts with higher concentrations of English learners, foster youth, and low-income youth. So there's more money on the table to support these students. But we know we have to think differently about how we support English learners. Um, A lot of the conversation has centered on um, the need to reclassify English learners, which I think is um, students who are designated as English learners, which I think is important. But But it doesn't stop it reclassification. Obviously, our goal needs to be that these students reclassify um, and continue to excel academically. And we can't take our um, eye off the ball um, and ensuring that those students um, make it through um, um, through high school and off to college and do really well. And that's something that I think we can improve on in the state. Um, I think it's also really important that we do think about ways to uh, innovatively support uh, English learners. So um, I, I think it was the wrong approach for Californians to vote for Prop 227, which were made bilingual programs 
And I'm happy to see that there's a proposition uh, on the books this year to correct that wrong um, that I believe will actually pass in order to bring um, bilingual programs back to California. Um, last but not least, so California, you know, one of four students in California have been designated as English learners. We, you know, we often talk about subgroups. <laughs> we often talk about, um, you know, needing to support students of color, et cetera. But English learners are a huge percentage of the group of students. Um, students of color are the majority of students in California. So equity is no longer a periphery issue around, um, okay, well, yes, that, and equity, that's important. Equity becomes the issue. Because the, the, this population is these students who go to our schools. So if there's ever a place to get this right, it's in California. And I hope we can rally around um, English learners more. And there's groups like Californians um, Together, Kave, and others who've done a fantastic job um, advocating for English learners in the state. We see NCLR playing a, a role, too. Um, but we need to be more forthright and committed um, to those students going forward. Mm. Are there bright spots in, in, in ELL learning? Are, that, are there communities or schools or um, programs that are getting it right that you, you'd look to as a model? Yeah, well, we, we are starting to see um, across the state, particularly with the new funding, um, innovative ways and approaches um, to um, supporting those students. So we see a number of districts um, who are providing um, more assistance, more coaching um, for for uh, for teachers who are supporting English learners. Um, we're starting to see more expanded learning opportunities up and down the state, particularly for students um, who are uh, English learners. Um, California Together and, and others fought for um, a biliteracy uh, SEAL certificate to really start to champion and applaud efforts um, where we see uh, schools and districts turning the curve for these students. So we're starting to see really exciting work happening. But I'll be truthful, more work has to be done um, based on the data that we see. And we're coming out with um, a report highlighting the state of Latino students this fall. And obviously, all Latino students are not English learners, but the majority of English learners in our state are Latino. Um, but And we talk about what we need to do to address these issues head on. So I'm excited to engage more uh, in the coming year. I'm excited to read that report. I wonder if um, we could spend a few minutes talking about your your day-to-day at the Education Trust, the things that go into making you an effective leader, um, as we spoke about being an executive director who is dedicated not just talking to policymakers, but really being a bridge between policy, community, uh, advocates, teachers, um, and speaking the multiple languages um, about the issues that, that that it takes to do that must require a great deal of organization, um, and I'm sure you have some stuff to share with uh, with us about how you how how you stay productive. So, tell what what is your what's a normal day for you? Uh, you 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 wake up and you start your morning, and what does that look like? What's the rest of the of the day uh, the day look like for you? Uh, yeah, I'm going to give you. Um, the normal day and the day I, I, I stri- you know, <laughs> I strive to, obviously there, <laughs> there are days that are very different, um, doing this work. Um, I'm sure. <laughs> but I'll, I'll say this, you know, I start the day, I try to wake up, um, around five, um, and try to hit the gym by six. If I can get an hour in the gym each day, like I pat myself on the back, uh, and I'm a spin guy. I like spin class because you're in there get to hear some Kanye West on the, on the bike and you get to leave into your day. Um, then, then try to get in, um, the office sometime, you know, hopefully a little earlier than my staff to review, um, emails that I may have missed the day before, um, to read, um, any of the policy briefs, et cetera, that I haven't had the opportunity to read yet. Um, and to think about how I could approach my day. Uh, my day consists of a lot of meetings, as you can imagine, a lot of phone calls. So, whether they're coalition meetings that I need to either attend in person or uh, participate over the telephone, whether meetings with um, the amazing dynamic team of that Trust West, I will just have to say this. 
I get to, this isn't me, I get to work with a remarkable team. Bayard Reston says every community needs a group of angelic troublemakers. And if I don't have the best angelic troublemakers, uh, data analysts, policy analysts, community organizers, lawyers who could have done any type of lucrative job, but came to that trust West, still very lucrative, um, being paid probably a lot less than they get paid to really fight for black, brown, and poor children. It's fantastic. So well, I'll have meetings with my team. They're bringing um, forth their ideas as it relates to research and policy, um, our strategy around advocacy, which I think is really important. Um, and, uh, and then I take time to, um, for the end of the day, to follow up on the tons of emails I may have missed. Um, and then um, I really do try to take time afterward to whether it's um, – whether it's visiting schools or whether it's being in community, going to community meetings locally or going like today, I'm actually in Palmdale. I serve as a mentor um, to the Palmdale Promise, which is a strategic planning process that practitioners are creating to help support student success. I like to be out there and talking because unfortunately um, policy tends to be very top down. Um, we don't always engage the voice of community. And I really believe with the passage of the Every Student Succeeds Act um, and uh, even the age of local control, we have the opportunity to do some real bottom-up policymaking, to engage those on the ground in helping inform and create policy. So it helps me to think about uh, um, the community and the teachers and parents when doing the work that we do at Trust West. Absolutely. What's the what's the most important productivity or organization tool that you you've engaged over the last year? What, what's the thing that that you just could not live without? Tool, thing, tool, or practice? Ooh, okay. Um, good question. So um, obviously, my, my my the biggest tool I have is I'm always kind of on the road in places. Uh, I think my staff would say it would have to be. Uh, my phone because it ends up being the thing I FaceTime on. If I need to talk to them, it's the thing I'm emailing on, um, I'm communicating throughout Look, et cetera. So I find that to be really um, important. Um, when I think about the most important thing I do, though, period, as far as uh, my leadership, it is really time when I can sit, whether it's with staff or community, and I can sit back and listen and, and, and ask them, what could we be doing better? And I, I don't know, even this day, I strive to do more of it, and I, I wish we had more time. I say that because of this. We're moving a mile a minute. Mm-hmm. We're often going around California. We are doing what we think the good work is. But we have to believe that we're not advocating on behalf of communities. We have to advocate with community. And that means that we need to be better at feedback loops. We need to be better at getting um, information from the communities we serve about, is this the right approach? We need to be the ones modeling how do you take the um, anecdotal information that we're hearing about what's happening in schools and think about that when approaching um, policymakers, their legislators, et cetera. But lastly, we need to make sure that all the people we're talking to are the ones who are communicating that information on behalf of themselves. So how are we, help, how are we helping to mobilize community to speak truth to power? How are we capturing the voice of students in our reports? How are we making sure that um, the images that we see, whether they're online or tools or in our reports, are reflective of California and not just stock images that we've used for the last 20 years? Like, those are things that we're thinking differently about. And I, and I get excited about um, uh, listening to community. Yeah. seems like a great example of presence and mindfulness and advocacy, uh, remaining connected and, and, uh, and not stale, right? Connected to the, to the realities of real people. That's right. That's right. Ryan, if you – so just a couple more questions uh, on this stuff. I'm wondering for those that are at that – are, are not quite there yet, they, but they want to be an executive director. They want to uh, lead a team. They want to 
um, have an opportunity to be uh, that senior level leader. But they're, they're just, you know, just getting out of that middle range of um, of, of advocacy or, or they're just at that mid range of their career. What do you do to, to bridge that gap and and become uh, become like you? Yeah, I, I would say this. Well, there's a couple of things. Number one, you know, I think we all strive to be senior level executive director. I think we believe that's kind of um, the, the top of uh, maybe your, your your goals. I would just ask you um, why. Mm. Why an executive director? Is it just because you think, well, it's, it seems like a great goal, or are you firmly committed to it? And the only reason I say that is being executive director it can be lonely. You, it can be, it can be um, a challenge. You're making decisions um, all the time, and you know sometimes in a vacuum. Um, it's an amazing opportunity, but you'll you'll have to sacrifice um, at times some of your personal life, etc., to do the work. So just make sure it's something you want to do. Talk to as many people who are senior level executive directors, etc., as possible, and make sure it's the right fit for you. Um, and as you think about it, I would just say this, it's important that you have, um, a cabinet of people around you who can help advise you on your career trajectory, on the things that you're thinking about doing. What's the next best step here? If my goal is to be executive director, what role should I be aiming for next? Um, you know, what did you do, um, to get where you were at? And I think those conversations were always helpful for me as I thought about my next step too, um, Lastly, I would, if you haven't shadowed somebody, an executive director or senior level person within an organization, ask to shadow them. Um, you probably don't want to shadow me. You probably, you, I'm like, unless you really like getting on planes in the middle of the day coming back, I might not do it. But I'd welcome it if you want to come. Um, because um, at the end of the day, you'll never get sentenced from someone's day to day unless you're with them. And um, I know that the shadowing opportunities I had as um, someone who was a little younger in their career really helped um, me figure out where I wanted to do going forward. Mm. That's excellent. Well, now that you've made that offer, I, I, I think I'll, I'm going to take you up on that, and uh, and I'm sure other, <laughs> others will, will want to as well. So be careful what you what you offer, uh, Ryan. I, I Hopefully, so we can do it all in one day. That'd be great. That's right. <laughs> Ryan, I can't tell you how much I appreciate this. This has been a great conversation, and uh, just thank you for, for taking time for us in the podcast, uh, for your generosity of spirit and, uh, and insight. You're just um, you're incredibly inspirational leader, and thank you for what you do. Absolutely, and uh, you know, thank uh, all the folks at Lee and all the teachers who are actually fighting a good fight. Thank you for being on the front lines, both in classrooms but in your careers. Appreciate you guys. Thank you, Ryan. Like this interview? Subscribe to the Leaders Table podcast on SoundCloud. You can also visit www.educationalequity.org/leaderstable for more resources to grow your impact. Tweet us your questions for future interviews at Lee underscore national. Thanks so much. Your host at the leader's table is Jason Urenz. I am your producer, Molly Stevens. And thanks to John Stevens for our music and editing. 